Hello, I'm Chris Marshall. Welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. On this edition of the podcast, Mandy Rhodes speaks to SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford about the party's latest independence push and the row of the Westminster government's decision not to locate the UK's first carbon capture plant in Scotland. But first, with just days to go before the start of the COP26 climate conference, I'm joined by my colleagues Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to discuss how things are shaping up. And Andrew, there's high hopes for the summit internationally, but in Scotland, all the talk has been dominated by potential for industrial action and the state of Glasgow streets. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big fears for organisers was that there would be no trains. Uh, the RMT were set to strike during the summit in a row over uh, paying conditions. Uh, that's a row that's been going on for over eight months now. Um, that meant no trains in Scotland during COP26, but you know, particularly no trains coming in or out of Glasgow. Um, not to o- over-egg here, Chris, but that would have been chaos, pandemonium. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you know, earlier this week, you know, it looked like that was what was going to happen. Graham, Dre, who, Graham Day, who's the transport minister, uh, said he was not optimistic. You had the opposition parties saying that he should resign over the whole row. Um, but then Wednesday night, last minute, uh, late night deal, uh, strike is off. So um, the RNT and Scotrail reached terms, and uh, that means that means the trains will run, and 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 also it means because the trains haven't been running in Scotland on Sundays for eight and a half months now, those uh, those services will return as well. So that's that's pretty good news uh, if you are one of the delegates who hasn't been able to secure accommodation in Glasgow or one of the people mm-hmm. who are doing something. However, uh, it's not just the real workers that were talking about a strike uh you know we have uh, council staff as well i think there are around 1500 glasgow council staff uh who have said they will strike um uh, and those are people who work uh, in you know school janitorial uh, in catering roles but also crucially in cleansing um so you know the people who work in the, the bin men and, and sort of pick up the fly tipping and all that sort of stuff which has already added pressure or uh, or sort of raise more questions about the state of Glasgow. And is Glasgow not just ready to host COP26, but is Glasgow clean enough to host COP26? Um, so during First Minister questions this week, Anna Sauer, who's the Labour leader, you know, he talked about uh, the First Minister turning a blind eye to uh, to uh, tonnes of waste piling up in the streets, fly-tipping on the rise, and, and over a, a million rats. Um, Another Labour MSP, Pam Duncan Glancy, who's one of Nicola Sturgeon's constituents, said that she had rats in her in her flat. Um, so they, they they think you know the first minister isn't really doing enough. And kind of those questions were also asked earlier this week when Susan Aitken, who's the leader of Glasgow City Council, was in front of MPs, and you know they were talked about you know are are bin men in Glasgow being attacked by rats? Uh, is that a, a, a problem? Is that like a, you know, a workplace hazard? And she confirmed that, uh, uh, that that maybe a bin man or two had had uh, a brief contact with a rat, um, but you know I'd only been to hospital very briefly, and uh, it was it was all fine. And I mean, Andrew, you you live in Glasgow. I mean, Nic- Nicola Sturgeon, uh, First Minister's questions when when Anna Sarwar raised this, she said, you know, you're talking down the city, you're talking down Glasgow. I mean, are they over-egging it for political gain or is it genuinely, have things genuinely got that bad? Well, I mean, that's that's a good question. I I, I can only, I can only uh, see what, say what I see. Um, I live quite close to Pam Duncan Glancy, as it happens. I'm not too far away from her. I also live reasonably close to Anna Sauer, though obviously he's in like a really lovely big mansion. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're not? 
I'm not. No. Oh, no, okay. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Um, okay. Uh, and I don't think it's got worse recently. I don't mm. think Glasgow is any worse than, than Edinburgh. You know, I come through to Edinburgh to the office now and again, and I, I don't think <laughs> Glasgow City Centre is any worse than Edinburgh City Centre. Mm. Um, I, I live in the top floor, so I don't know if, I don't think rats can get to the top floor. That's how it works, isn't it? They can, you hope they climb climb steps. They're like Daleks. And, <laughs> so I don't know, um, but I don't I don't think. And if anything, actually, I think the place has had a bit of a spruce up ahead of COVID mm-hmm. six. I think the place looks a bit a bit cleaner now than it than it has. But you know, there are clearly people who have problems with the rats, and you know, fly tipping is a, a huge problem, certainly in, in uh, especially in, in uh, the south side of Glasgow, which is where I and Pam and, and Nicola Sturgeon all are so yeah I, well you know i'm sure there are other people in glasgow who have different uh, who have seen different things than i have yeah and louise we're not only expecting disruption from cop but we're also anticipating some pretty sizable protests from the likes of extinction rebellion and that was something that the first minister and the tory leader douglas uh, ross cr- uh, clashed on at fmqs today yeah, so we know there's a bunch of protests planned already. We know about the the youth action that's taking place on Friday. We know there's a, a separate protest taking place on the Saturday. Um, but those are the ones that have all like been planned and been carefully coordinated. And presumably they've had some kind of police involvement to check that they're safe. What we don't know about is essentially what Extinction Rebellion and other groups like that are are planning. Um, so they've come out today and said that they're they're planning um, deliberate disruption. Um, and non-violent direct action. Um, we don't know exactly what that means yet, but of course this is a group that, that has caused some chaos before in, in London. I think even in Edinburgh a couple of years ago, they laid down in the middle of one of the streets to, to stop bringing the city to an essential uh, essential standstill at like rush hour, I think it was. Um, so I imagine they'll be deploying similar similar tactics again Um so I guess I guess a lot of the police that um, that they are bringing up to Scotland will have been briefed on how to handle that, um, and I guess after after everything recently with with the police as well, there'll be a bit of a close eye on that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean uh, Nicola Sturgeon was asked about it repeatedly by Douglas Ross, and she sort of quite um, quite cleverly sidestepped it and just put it all at Police Scotland's door. Yeah, yeah. Um, w- wouldn't like to be a, a police person on on the beat just now. Um, no. But yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that we don't really know what's what's going to happen. And I suppose the idea is that it, if they're causing maximum disruption, that's what's going to bring world leaders' attention to whatever their mm-hmm. their issue is that they're trying to trying to raise awareness of. Yeah. Of course, it said there's going to be what our police were being told to expect between two hundred and three hundred arrests a day, which is. Which is massive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, se- I've seen on on Facebook recently. There's there's been a thing going about about um, support groups for people that have been arrested. That certainly certainly come up on my Facebook, being like, you know, call this lawyer mm-hmm. if you're if you're in trouble. So uh, even the protesters are are planning those arrests as well. Well, it sounds like that lawyer is going to be pretty busy over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> um, uh, Louise, we've we've also spoken to uh, COP president Alok Sharma for the upcoming edition of Hollywood Magazine. And he wouldn't be drawn on whether um, any agreement that comes out of COP would be called the Glasgow Agreement. But, I mean, how, how hopeful should we be of, of any kind of positive agreement coming out of, coming out of the summit? Honestly, 
I have no idea at this point. <laughs> and, and I, you, you and everyone else. Well, yeah, I, I feel no shame in admitting that because I don't think anyone does. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's been various things about how the UK government and, and Alex Sharma himself don't seem to be setting anything concrete that they want to tackle. And, and is that because they're not convinced that they're going to meet anything in particular. There's the argument that actually Paris was the big agreement. So this is just, you know, getting there. There's mm-hmm. been the the nationally determined contributions, the the amount that each country has like said that they'll that they'll reduce their admissions by. Um and the UN then report coming out this week saying that even that wasn't enough. Um mm-hmm. so I mean it's all all just a bit up in the air and I I don't think anyone is really sure what the result is going to be least of all the uk government despite the fact that they're hosting it yeah indeed well uh, uh, some interesting uh, weeks ahead thank you both and now mandy rose speaks to ian blackford Ian, given that we've just been laughing about your job as a mobile disc jockey back in the day, um, it, it seems apt to go in on the fact the Prime Minister accused you of being far too gloomy about the future during PMQs this week, that you must keep hope alive, he advised. Where is that famous SNP positivity these days? Oh, gosh. Positivity is so important. And, you know, I desperately want Scotland to be independent and I want us to be independent as soon as possible and very simply Mandy in my view we will only become independent if we project a vision and an image of the kind of Scotland that we can be and look I would admit that that there is a challenge in some respects because you you want to talk about how you're going to change things and there's there's a lot of work which is going on to identify out of the pandemic how we could how we can do that how do we how do we create that um, sustainable but faster-growing economy that, that will drive up living standards? How do we take people out of poverty? How do we deliver fairness and so on and so forth? And there is a, a positive message to deliver out of that. However, there's an awful lot which is going on at the moment which is not good. There's a cost-of-living crisis that we have. There's um, everything that's happened with Brexit. And this week in Prime Minister's questions, I was talking about what is the massive missed opportunity for us in not getting carbon capture and storage in Scotland? And I also dovetailed that with talking about tidal marine, which is a huge opportunity for green energy, but green energy that's defendable. And for the Prime Minister to behave in such a way, I mean, I think it says more about him and his use of language. And when people want to see that we've got that roadmap to a greener future, to to see it dismissed that way and to be told that you're you're not optimistic, well, as I said, I think I think people can make their own judgments on that. Hopefully I am an optimistic person. I have I hope I'm someone with a, a sunny disposition, but I've got a job to do to hold hold the government to account that Prime Minister's questions in particular. On that particular point, though, Ian, isn't it perhaps the case that the Scottish bid in this instance wasn't just good enough at this stage? And it's quite difficult arguing a Scottish exceptionalism when you're basically arguing for areas that have been equally hit by economic sledgehammers like the north of England. So I'm going to see the uh, Secretary of State on Tuesday with with others. I'm going to do it on a a cross-party basis. And I'm going to ask him to reverse this decision not on the basis that he should be taking away the offer of opportunities for carbon capture and storage in other parts of the United Kingdom, but on the basis that the the ACON bid 
to use a phrase, it's not a phrase I like, but is is one, <coughs> excuse me, that did tick all the boxes. Um, I think there was a fantastic bid that was put together, a very professional bid. I think it was well-grounded. And, and, and let me say this, Mandy, because I think it's massively important that all of us that want to get to net zero, that this carbon capture and storage project for Scotland is absolutely fundamental to that. And it's just got immeasurably more difficult as a consequence of the decision that the government's taken. And, and let's remember that, that a lot of the infrastructure that we require is already there in terms of the pipelines into the North Sea and, of course, going back again into into Grangemouth because Grangemouth, Ineos, is so important to our green industrial future as well. So it really is a, a massive blow. <clears throat> but I want to commend ACORN for all the business people, all the organisations that have been involved in it, I think there's been a discipline and there's been a rigour. And and simply what is a political decision not to recognise that when the northeast of Scotland in particular has been the home of our oil and gas industry um, needs to make that transition. Because let's not forget, we've got a, a situation that there are 71,000 workers in oil and gas in Scotland today. And that if we're able to deliver on carbon capture and storage we'll create about 15,000 jobs. So it's an important part of that transition away from from fossil fuels. And we're being hampered by the decision that the, the government took this week. But, you know, if I can just highlight quickly on on the importance of, of, of Tidal, because when you're talking about Tidal, we have got some fantastic companies here, uh, not least uh, Nova and Atlantis. And Atlantis are ready to develop the MGN2 project. They can't do it unless they get the support. And the industry is asking for funding of £71 million in the context of an industry that the Royal Society and others are highlighting could be 20% of our electricity production by 2050, actually bigger than nuclear. And when you consider that all the mistakes, and let's call them for what they are, the mistakes that have been made in oil and gas uh, and in, in, in wind turbines, that we haven't got the engineering base that we should have here in Scotland. Yet when you talk about um, Tidal Marine, we own the technology, we have the expertise here. These companies are supplying turbines to Japan and Canada, and the UK government's not prepared to give a, a helping hand. That's appalling when you consider the opportunities that are there. And we, we have a duty, all of us have got a duty and a responsibility to, to do the right thing. I guess the problem is, Ian, that you have to strike a balance. And would you because you don't want to be accused, presumably, in an optimistic future outlook for Scotland of having built anything on just grievance. And really, would you have felt the same had Scotland won the bid but Liverpool hadn't? Well, look, at the end of the day, um, we have a responsibility to the planet. We've got a responsibility to future generations. And we have to do the right thing here for people in Scotland, but we have to do the right thing in the United Kingdom and Europe and right around the world. And that's why I make the point that what we should be doing is, <coughs> excuse me, acknowledging the two bids that have now achieved tier one status in England, but let's add the ACORN project to it. So this is not, I, I'm not looking to build anything based on grievance. I'm, I'm pointing out that we are, yes, we're being held back. But the fact that I'm going in to see Quasi Quartang on Tuesday and I'm doing that with others, I will work collectively with others because this is this is so important to our future. And I'm not seeking to, to build a grievance. There is a frustration. 
as to how we're being dealt. And I think I do have the obligation to point out that there is there is an alternative and there's so much which is going on. The cost of living crisis, everything that's happened with the, the cuts to universal credit, which I just feel are just, well, I hate to say it, are, are vindictive. That, of course, I want to point out that there's uh, an alternative. That's not about grievance. That's about saying there is another way. Okay, well, let's turn the PM's words back on himself and say, let's find some hope in a different kind of future. And the message you wanted to get across to Scottish journalists visiting Westminster last week was that renewed momentum around independence, that your MPs should be going back to their constituencies, asking people to imagine the kind of Scotland they'd like to live in. Describe to me the Scotland you'd like to live in. One of the things you'll be aware of, Mandy, is that there was a report that was published in 2014, came out from Credit Suisse, um, and it was entitled What Makes Small Countries Successful? And, you know, from a philosophical point of view, I mean, it, it, it is demonstrably the case, academic studies have shown this, that in general that small countries tend to have better outcomes than than larger ones. And I'm not suggesting for one minute these things happen by themselves, they don't. And it's interesting when you look, it's an extraordinary report in some senses from a from an investment bank, because even way back in 2014, they were talking about human development index, they were talking about some of the aspects of wellness and so on. And it is the case that for whatever reason, that smaller countries tend to be more flexible, tend to have better outcomes when it comes to health and education. And I've often wondered if that is what creates a competitive advantage. And if you look over the course of the last 10 years, and if I take the work that's been that's been done by David Skilling, for example, who I, I would say is probably the leading expert in small economies around the world. And you look at the last 10 years and you see that small countries have grown at around about 3% per annum on a compound basis. Larger countries have grown at 1.3%. Now, we've got to create the policy framework that makes that happen. We've got to create a, a culture of entrepreneurialism in Scotland. We've got to use that immense talent that we've got in our academic sector to be able to accelerate the business startup and there's so many things that are happening in the establishment of the the investment bank for example and we, we need to engage with people and actually have that discussion about collectively because this is about everybody how we change scotland but let me to deal specifically with the the question you've put because we've just come through a scottish election there is a majority for an independent referendum my message to boris johnson is that he has to respect democracy that the parliament will in the fullness of time, pass a bill to allow for a referendum to take place. So that process will happen. And to some extent, that process is out with my area of responsibility and out with the ability of my parliamentary group to influence it. But what we can do is recognise these things are taking place and let's get out as members of parliament, as leaders in our communities, and let's go and listen to people. Let's go and engage with the SNP, with the Yes Movement, but with everybody in our communities. And one of the things, and I know we've talked about this in politics over the last few days, about having a gentler politics and uh, an environment where people can can express themselves without fear of abuse. And I desperately want to have a situation that we can discuss Scotland's future. And I and I want to create that space for everybody. And and perhaps people that have a have a fear of, of independence. Let's listen to them. And let's think about how we can how we can make a change. And out of all of that, Mandy, we have to inspire people. 
I mean, given we'll we'll come back to what you just said about creating a space so that people can speak. But given you lost the referendum in 2014, seven years on, yes, um, the SNP have won uh, the Scottish Parliament election yet again. But really, you haven't moved the argument on for independence. The polls aren't showing anything. In fact, they're looking as if they're going backwards for you. Well, I mean, the polls are the polls, and they move they move around to some extent. But I think if if, if you look at the period in, in our politics ever since the SNP becoming a majority government <coughs> in 2011, I would argue that in, in many respects, the discussion that, that we've had has been largely one about process. You could say in 2014, we had the white paper from the Scottish government, and there was some discussion at that time about what kind of country. But I'm not sure that there has been a debate about Scottish independence. There's been a debate about process. And we need to change that back. And that's why I want to have that broader discussion with everybody, with the other side, to engage in it. Let's have that discussion about what kind of country do we do we want to be. I don't think that debate has taken place. It has to take place now and it has to take place in the right spirit. Given we continue to vote the SNP back into the Scottish Parliament, but that the support for independence either doesn't move or rolls back, is there a disconnect between that? Do you think we, I mean, originally in 2011, it was about showing a competence of government and in 2007. But what is it doing now? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, Perhaps it's easy to forget the Parliament's only been with us for just over 20 years, and I think Scotland's a very different place. I think the Parliament has done <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a lot of good things, but of course we need to make sure that the, the, the Parliament can deliver across all its devolved competencies, and I think it is fair to say that, that obviously with, with COVID and with other things, I mean, I'm not going to deny that there have been things, frankly, that we, we, we could have done better, and the, my colleagues in government, the First Minister has acknowledged that, particularly when it comes to things like drug deaths, for example, and there's lessons that we have to learn in other areas as well. And people rightly should judge us on our ability to deliver. I understand that. But I think equally we've got to think about what we can do. And I think there have been some enormous successes over the, the last few years. What we've done in social policy, um, the setting up of the investment bank that I referred to earlier, what we've done on the baby box and so on, the child payments that uh, that are coming through. There's an awful lot of good, an approach to education and not having tuition fees and so on and so forth. And I think sometimes we do, and again, I understand why, we, we concentrate on some of the areas where, frankly, we could have done better. But equally, you know, even when you look at areas such as health and education, the outcomes that we have in health are immeasurably better than other parts of the United Kingdom. And I think we've done the right things in terms of closing the attainment gap in in education. So I think (coughs) there's an awful lot that we can be proud of, but we've got to do that across the piece. And we've got to give people the encouragement. I mean, some people would say, Ian, that after 14 years in government, actually the outcomes aren't that much better, or in some cases they're actually worse. You mentioned drug deaths. and, And yet we have one of the most regressive governments in power at Westminster in terms of human rights and other outcomes. And yet our results aren't that much better. We would see ourselves as so much more progressive. Well, we are much more progressive. And I think that is true when you look at the outcomes in, in health, for example. And when I can only, so my interface is a lot with NHS Highland, for example. And my goodness, we've had our own challenges up here in the, in the past, but we've got a fantastic management team that I'm very proud of. Um, and I think we should celebrate the, the good things that they've done. And I, 
and we compliment everybody that's in the front line that's had to deal with the COVID outbreak. But we have a service we can be proud of, Mandy. And you know, when when, when I went round as as a candidate in the election of 2019, and when I talk to people on the doorstep, that is universally what people say. And and, and yes, there are challenges. As I said, I don't demur from any of that. But people's experiences of these things are universally good. People's experience with the education that children get is normally pretty good. But perhaps that's not a, that's not a story that's going to come across, and I understand it in the media every day, because everybody focuses on where there are challenges, and rightly so. But I think most people see that the Scottish government is on their side, has delivered across a whole variety of areas, and has tried to mitigate some of the things that you've talked about from, from Westminster, the bedroom tax as an example, what we're doing on child poverty payments, trying to drive people out of poverty. But there is no question that when you've got <coughs> the UK government cutting uh, universal credit, when we don't have the powers that we, we need to have over employment and so on and so forth, then we can't do all the things that we would like to do. And again, I know you used the word earlier, grievance, and I know you're not suggesting that in, that in this context, but it's, it's really up to us to explain the kind of things that we could that we could do. Look at our climate ambitions, which go faster and further than the UK government does and the progress that we've made. Um, and that takes us back to where we where we came into earlier, the things that we're not able to do. I want us to be able to, to navigate to that greener future far faster, but I want us to do that through innovation. You know, there's an awful lot of talk that takes place about camp oil field, for example, <clears throat> and I understand all of that. But what we ought to really be doing is say, what do, what do we need to do to drive down demand for fossil fuels, but at the same time make sure that there are opportunities for jobs, for good jobs, for green jobs that, that, that come out of that? And we, we talked about Grangemouth, talked about Ineos. Um, I'm an area that I worked in in, in the Netherlands <coughs> was the area of bioplastics. Just take that as one micro example. 18% of the world's oil goes into the production of plastics. <clears throat> we can now make plastics from renewable materials. We need to make sure that we're on the front foot in all of these things. And we're in the vanguard, not just because it's right for Scotland, because it's right for our obligations globally as well to leave this planet in a in a better place for next generations. And I want us to have the powers and to show leadership in all of these things in, in a way that I have to say, sadly, is not coming to the extent that it that it needs to do from, from Westminster. Yeah, you've politics as we all know is about choices and this determination that the UK government is going to go down the road of nuclear energy is something that we reject and we know that tidal marine can provide that gap that we need can provide that 20% out of our electricity actually on a much more affordable basis than could be done with nuclear and it's about that mentality it's about that mindset it's about the values that lead you to take these choices the way that you would that you would do so why do you think they would make a choice of being pro-nuclear as against tidal? Oh heavens! <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't really understand that. I think a lot of. Well, but do you I, think it's political? Um. So I suspect that that Quasi Quartag is probably more on side with with me actually than he probably is with his colleague in the Treasury, and I think a lot of this, a lot of the pressure from this is is coming from uh, is coming from the Chancellor. Um, I'm, I'm meeting Quasi Cartagena on Tuesday. I'll respond to the budget on Wednesday, so I'll be able to flesh these things out a wee bit more. But you know, I talked about these kind of values, and one of the things we would do in an independent Scotland is we would take defence seriously. We'd make sure that you know, we we play our part. We'd be a member of NATO, as you know. 
but we're wholly against nuclear weapons. And yet here we have the UK government is not only committing itself to the maintenance of the nuclear deterrent, wants to increase the number of nuclear warheads. Now, from a philosophical, from a moral, from an ethical point of view, these are not positions that I or, or, or we could support. So the mindset is quite different. The starting position is quite different. Given all of that, and, and Boris Johnson is in Scotland a remarkably unpopular Prime Minister, and we've got all the consequences of Brexit beginning to show. We've got, as you say, an energy crisis, a health crisis, an environmental crisis. Surely this is the best possible time for the SNP to be really shouting from the rafters about what exactly you want Scotland to become. And, and it, it feels at the moment that that just isn't happening. I can assure you it will happen. And when though? From now. And that process is starting. Look, we've we've come through a period where all our efforts, all our focus over the last eighteen months has had to be on COVID. And it's not gone, by the way. We're not we're not through this yet. And the attention of the First Minister in particular has been pretty well solely on the on the COVID crisis. So government in Edinburgh had to put aside any work, any preparation for for independence. Now, you know this has been signalled publicly that that has changed and that there will be papers coming from the Scottish Government over the course of the coming period. So that process of engagement is going to start. Let's start that discussion, as, I, as I've hi- I highlighted and hinted. We still have to deal with COVID and the desire to take care, particularly as we come through the winter. And I guess what I'm doing with my group, and I've given Stuart Hosey responsibilities on behalf of us to coordinate our campaigning, in many respects, that campaigning will begin in earnest as we come out of the winter period. But I'm putting in place the process. And by the way, I mean, I will share with you, I mean, we don't talk about what happens, obviously, at group meetings and any of the, any of the detail of that for reasons that you understand. But I can say to you that um, the, the group, everybody in the group, is fantastically engaged and encouraged by the signal that we've that we've given, that we want, expect, demand them to be much more involved uh, in this campaign. And it's done on a collegiate basis. It's for everybody. It's for everybody within the group. It's working with the party. It's working with our MSP colleagues. But more importantly, it's working with the, the public, our constituents, and having that, having that respectful dialogue with all of them. I mean, I guess I'd be shocked if you said that the SNP group of MPs weren't engaged in a debate no. around independence. <laughs> so yeah. what in practical terms are you actually asking them to do that they haven't already been doing? Well, it's a, it's a cha- what I'd say is it's a change of emphasis because we haven't really been campaigning for independence. Um, there's been Everyone's had to respect COVID, so we're signalling that we will take our responsibilities of leadership to, to restart that. Um, and I've asked them to to get around their constituencies, to to listen to people, but to engage with, with third sector organisations, to engage with businesses. Let's do the job that we that we did in, in 2014, where people were having public meetings, people were having hustings. Um, so you'll, you'll see a, a stepping up of the intensity. And Mike Russell, whose responsibility for the party, party president, has also signalled that as well. So there's a million leaflets that will be coming. Uh, over the course of the next period, so it will be a step up in that in, in in that engagement, and I want all our MPs to be leaders in that campaign. We will, as I said, I've given Stuart Hosey the responsibility of of coordinating much of that, um, and I've asked we will meet regularly to discuss these things uh, as a group, and and I want the MPs to come with their own ideas 
as to as to how we can influence that campaign. The Scottish Government will have responsibility for the policy framework that I've talked about, but parliamentarians uh, in, in Westminster, my group, uh, will be encouraged to be part of that process in terms of uh, contributing work, contributing ideas and so on. And hopefully the million leaflets will be on recycled paper, Ian. I'm sure they will be. <laughs> um, look, I'm pretty sure your vision of an independent Scotland isn't the kind of Scotland where women are threatened or bullied because of their views that biology matters when it comes to upholding women's rights. But in the end, that's what the Scottish journalists really focused on last week in the wake particularly of um, the murder of David Amos. And it wasn't a really, it wasn't a good look for you really, was it? Look, I think when we we reflected on the Scottish Parliament and how much Scotland's changed over the last twenty years, and I, and I, and I think the one area where we've done remarkably well is the issue of equality and rights. And I think we've got to continue, and I'm talking about this in a broad sense, to continue to challenge that agenda of of rights and respect for all. Now, I'm not coming. Like I know there's obviously legislation which is going to come in and, and GRA, and that will be the responsibility of the Parliament. I'm not going to get drawn on that too specifically. But, but everything that I've said about making sure that this is an environment, this is a culture, this is an atmosphere that has to be respectful for all, that we that we listen to to everybody's views and all of that is really really important, Mandy. And it's about how you it's about how you create that environment. That, that is really, really key. And I think, and I, I, I've expressed to you previously that I'm alarmed at the nature of our political discourse, um, a lot which has happened in social media. I, have to, I mean, politicians have got a responsibility of leadership and all of that, but so do the media. And when you're in a situation where, over the course of the last five years, in doing their job, that two parliamentarians have lost their life, well, that's that's as that's as bad as it gets, isn't it? And when when I read in the press this morning that the individual who's been charged with David Amos's death had been engaged in um, looking at the targeting of another two MPs, we don't know who they are. That's pretty chilling. So all of us, all of us have got a responsibility to to recognise that we're not in a brilliant place. And all of us have got a responsibility to tackle that and to make sure that everybody is supported in that process. And there's talks going on at the moment about the support that will be given to parliamentarians, security support and so on, and that's right and proper. But this is not just about parliamentarians, it's about their staff, it's about their family. But it's actually about other people that are on the front line that are getting abuse as well. And all of us, we we need to campaign to make sure that there is zero tolerance of of, of bad behaviour, threatening behaviour. It cannot be allowed, and it cannot be allowed against anybody, period. I mean, Ian, there's a whole number of things I just want to go over with you on that. I mean, and I guess the the sort of denigration of respect in, in terms of politicians has gone on for some time and for lots of different reasons, but you mentioned social media there. I mean, do you think social media plays an enormous part in all of this? Oh, there is no question. And I think it has become just so unbelievably toxic. And even over the course of the last few days where you think people might reflect on what had happened and it hasn't stopped. And I mean, I when I, when I spoke in the tributes to David Amos, I, I, I followed Marc Francois, who's um, 
one of the one of the more colourful characters, shall I yeah. say, on the on the Brexit side in in, in, in Parliament. And um, look, on a personal level, I I have no issues with Mark, and I, and I, and I get on well with him. But he he's <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he spoke with tremendous eloquence on Monday and argued that we're going to have to use legislation. And actually, and I did say that I didn't find a single word that Mark had said in his tribute to David that I would disagree with. So let's take our responsibilities. Let's take our responsibilities in terms of behaviour. And yes, if the social media companies are not taking their responsibilities, then we're going to have to legislate to force them to do it. And it's as, it's as simple and as, as basic as that. I mean, completely coincidentally, you and I were actually on a Teams call together when the news broke about Sir David. Um, and, you know, I hope you don't mind me, Shane, but you were visibly very upset. What did it mean to you personally? I mean, are you worried about your own safety apart from anything else, apart from being sad about what had happened that day? No, I'm not worried about my own safety. I mean, it's not because it's not about me, but I've got a responsibility to colleagues. But Obviously, the, when I was speaking with you last week, we, we, we heard the news that, that, that David had passed away. Um, I was actually speaking to another colleague of yours earlier on in the day, and I had Sky Television on on mute in the background, and I saw pictures of David Amos flashing up, and I didn't register at first as to what was going on. And then my phone started bleeping. And I said to the journalist I was speaking to, look, something must have happened. We need, he said, so, so is mine. And I, I watched the screen and it showed that David had been stabbed. And I can remember how I felt where I was when we had the news of Joe Cox. I was at an SNP meeting in, in the House of Commons. We'd actually just gone into recess, but we'd stayed behind because we had a social justice policy forum Um Ailey Whiteford was leading that, and Ailey, of course, had actually worked with uh, Joe in, in Oxfam prior to that, so there was her relationship that, 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 that she had. And just, I think, just that horror that somebody in a surgery, somebody that was doing her best for her constituents had lost her life. And I didn't know Joe particularly well, but I mean, many other people that do spoke very warmly as to the type of person that she is. There's, there's something... In a kind of way quite interesting. You think about Joe, you think about Stephen Timms, who I do know, um, who was stabbed but thankfully survived. Um, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me describing him as a as a genial giant because that's that's what he is and someone that I enjoy spending time in his company. And I, I knew David to, to some extent. Other people knew him better than I did, but. I always had very, again, someone politically very different, but I always had interesting conversations with, with David, and my abiding memory of him is in the corridor with him coming towards you and always with a smile on his face. Um, not a bad bone in his in his body, and just just a tremendous sense of sadness that somebody that, that can be taken like that, and for, for him, for his constituents, but for his family in particular, um, for Joe's family and I spoke to her sister this week, I spoke to Keir who I know had spoken to uh, Joe's, Joe's parents and it, it just brings all of this all of this home again and we we can never 
get ourselves in a situation that we can say that these things will not happen. But we have to do everything that we can to make sure they don't. Let me, let me, let me tell you a quick story. Because this issue of toxicity and, and people not getting on and, 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 and so on. And, of course, in the chamber, the way that the chamber's arranged, it's an adversarial style and people should be passionate. People should be able to debate robustly. There's a line that, that, that can't be crossed. And, 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 and you know, because you know lots of us, that when we come out of the chamber, that when you leave that door, then these arguments should be should be left behind. We're all going off to the tea room. We have to sit cheek by jowl. There was an interview that was done a few weeks ago in the Belfast Telegraph with Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP. And in that article, uh, he was asked who his political friends were. And he named two people, Conor McGinn, a Labour MP who comes from an Irish nationalist background, and myself. And he expressed that he disagreed with me in terms of Scottish independence, but that we got on extremely well. And I, I responded to that tweet by confirming that that was the case. And I think it's really important that all of us do that. We are political opponents. We're not enemies. And well... <laughs> I mean, that kind of leads us, though, doesn't it, nicely, if you like, into you're you're getting headlines about people within your own group not getting on. So if you can't control that, how can you control things that leak out elsewhere? Well, of course, you know, in a funny kind of way, sometimes political parties are are a broad church, you know that. And um, not everybody's going to get on. (coughs) I think the, the importance of leadership is trying to, trying to minimise that as much as possible, to lead by example, to show by example. Um, and I'll always I'll always try to do that. I mean, look, you're always going to get, the media are always going to navigate towards areas of, of, of conflict, whatever, whatever they are. But I can say to you that in general, that I've got a group that's, that gets on very well. I've got staff members that I'm very proud of. I'm very proud of the group as well. But we are pretty well focused on the job that we have in hand as constituency MPs have been the the third party group in Westminster and standing up for Scotland and so on and so forth. And, you know, most of the time, whether it's at group meetings or any other meetings, I've got people, people organised in four, four broad policy forums. And from time to time, I go around the, the policy forums. There's a lot of work being done and an awful lot of support that there is uh, across the board for colleagues. And as leader, I've got a responsibility to make sure Everybody's supported. Every MP, every member of staff is supported, and that that importance of giving pastoral care is something that I that I take very seriously. But and yet, you know, on so let's call it out then. So you've got Joanna Cherry saying that she doesn't feel supported. This week we saw Casty Blackman responding to tweet, tweets saying she wondered why something wasn't being done about Joanna Cherry or agreeing with people who wanted her sacked. I mean, that's not the sign of a a friendly group of people, is it? Well, look, I can't, I mean, obviously you, you know that I can't comment on what happens within group meetings or what happens between between individuals. But what, what I will say is that there is that duty of care that we have and the importance to support people. And that is something that I'm satisfied that we do for absolutely everybody. And you'll understand why I can't get into, into circumstances or any individuals. I can't do that. But for me, um, being able to offer offer that support to everybody is something which is um, which is massively important and that, and is always done. I mean, to be honest, I suppose I don't really see why you can't get into things that are said on a public forum, like um, Casty agreeing or liking or retweeting a 
things that call for uh, Joanna to be sacked. I mean, that I don't really understand why you can't comment on well, that. Because when you understand anything I say on these matters in itself is going to create a headline. And what, what, I, what I am saying is that there needs to be tolerance and respect and that importance of leadership. And I, and I think I'd really like to like to leave it at that and the responsibilities that everybody has mandate. Okay, I'm going to go on to some broader things in a minute, but you also had said earlier about um, when you mentioned the GRA, and we all know that at the heart of a lot of the conflict that's going on at the moment is around the reform of the GRA and how some of that those arguments have been presented. You, you said an interesting thing that you didn't really want to, to be led on that or to speak on that. Hasn't that been the problem, that political leaders have abdicated responsibility for almost speaking about this? No, I don't think so. And, and look, at the end of the day, th- this is a matter of devolved competence and it's in the programme for government and the First Minister has a responsibility of leadership on that. And on the one hand, th- there has to be full consultation on these matters and legislation will come forward. And and I think it's the mark of how that is done that's important. And I think we've had We've had other con- con- goodness gracious. We've had other controversial legislation in the, in the in in our parliament over the course of the last twenty years, and I think in all of those occasions, our parliament has handled those situations well, Mandy. And I I, I would expect that to be the case again. I w- I would simply say to to everybody, let's respect all points of views. Let's allow these issues to be properly debated. Um, and, and and understand the importance of these matters for all that are um, that, that that are involved in it. But we've we've got that responsibility. Everybody knows that we're debating at the Scottish Parliament. Knows that are going to be engaged in the debate in a wider sense to make sure the phrase that I used earlier that there is a a respectful debate on on, on what are absolutely critical matters. On the more general point, Ian, about management, I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier on. You're someone who has worked in the real world, been very successful. I could call it the real world. I think you know what I mean. But you've been very successful. You've employed people. You've made money, a lot of money. You've sacked people. You've grown things. Is this not a very strange world to be involved in, to lead a group of people that you didn't directly employ, but you're trying to corral? It's, it is quite an odd position to be in. I suppose, in many respects, we're all shaped by our experiences, aren't we? And I've been lucky, as you said. I mean, I've led fairly large organisations um, in in the past. And um, actually, I've, I've worked for two leadership organizations where I've been brought in to speak on leadership and to mentor and so on as well. I mean I've I've worked in fund management, I've worked in investment banking, I've I've been a an investor relations director of the company. So I guess I've got a kind of wide range of and been chairman of companies and so on and so forth. So I hope that all helps in giving you a range of experiences. I suppose I mean there's two aspects to it. A lot a lot of my day to day life as, a, as an MP is based with my staff, whether it's my constituency staff or whether it's my my staff in Westminster. And, and, and to a large extent, I have chosen them, some I've inherited, but I've always sought to make sure that people are looked after properly, there's a proper structure that we that we operate as a as a team. And I am fond and proud of every 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 one of them and the way that we that we work together. Um, and I suppose you're right, it is different when you're working with parliamentarians that 
I haven't selected. They've been selected by their constituency parties and then they've gone forward and won, and won election. But they have been sent there. They have chosen me as their parliamentary leader and I have to be re-elected every year, by the way. So I'll be judged by them on, on my ability to give leadership to that group. I used the phrase earlier on that, that political parties are broad churches and our, our group is certainly a broad church and even... I would say my my front bench is is a is a broad church, but I I I hope that others, including myself, can can find inspiration from the broad range of talents that we've got within that group and and and, and people that are very different from me. And I've got a job to do and try to lead the group. I've got a job to do to make sure I'm working with with the First Minister, which is, which is again, is a, a private pleasure and a privilege to do. But one of the things that I had to do in business was to develop my team. And I, I guess one of the things when I look at the group and I see a lot of people that are a lot younger than me, and when I can see people um, making a contribution to the Chamber, developing, and there's lots of, I'm not going to name any names, but there are lots of people I can see that, that do that, then often the pleasure that comes out of that can far outweigh any of the the challenges in trying to mold people together. And, but I would say, I mean, I talked about what happens in the in the policy teams. And, and, you know, most of the time, people actually rub along quite well. I suppose you've answered the question. I was going to say, why why do you even bother with it? Why Have you ever just thought, oh, God, I can't be bothered. I'm just going to walk away from all this. I don't need it. Um, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a really interesting question. And I'm not a spring chicken. Um, Don't say me. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was, I was, I, I was, I was elected as a, as a, as, as a more mature uh, member of the team, if I can put it that way, in age terms, anyway. And I mean, I was happy doing what I was doing. I was given the, the, the brief to look after pensions. I had no leadership ambitions, none at all. And um, I was probably surprised as anybody else when. After Angus Robertson sadly lost his seat, I was propelled into into the position of of, of leadership of the group of twenty seventeen, and I, I want to admit that that does change things because I I really enjoyed the opportunity to get to get my jacket off and get stuck in and in a wide range of policy areas and, and able to actually work with other people. So, for example, I was one of those that was instrumental in the Majinski legislation, amongst other things. And when you're the leader of a third party, then you've, you've got to draw back from a lot of that day-to-day stuff. And um, you're, you're leading, you're managing the group. So in some respects, I regret that a lot of the things I would like to do in Parliament, I can't do. But that's just a harsh reality of where I am. But to lead the group to, I mean, I think we had a relatively successful 2019 election campaign. I can be proud of what collective we all achieved. And as I mentioned, to see people develop, that's that's what I've signed up for, and I could at any time I could have stood down after being elected in twenty sixteen as leader, twenty seventeen rather, in any of the next four years, and we'll have our annual general meeting in a few weeks' time, and I, I guess I'll put my name forward for 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 selection again. I, I want to continue doing the job, but it's a different job from the one that I had as a member of the group in twenty fifteen seventeen. So, do you still enjoy it? Is it fun? <coughs> Pause. <laughs> I think you know. I know. Well, I think you know me well enough. I'm never. I'm never going to duck a question. And I'm. Um, I don't think anybody could argue that. I don't know. I think you've ducked a few. <laughs> tried not to. <laughs> um, 
is this fun? We've come through a very challenging period, and that's more to do with everything else that's going on uh, with with COVID and all the rest of it. Um, and, and I've talked about, you know, the responsibilities that you have and and, and and all the rest of it. And of course, there are things that are fun, but it's not it's not as much fun as it should be. But you've you've got a responsibility to get on with it. And the burning question, Ian, is: Do you have a billiards room? No, <laughs> no. So. Um, I live on a croft. And, As the uh, Prime Minister told his conference. Yeah, so, I, I mean, a lot of your listeners will know what a croft is, some won't, but <coughs> this is a typical croft. In fact, my wife's great-grandfather built the, the croft house that we that we live in. So, no, um, I don't have a billiards room. <laughs> no. <laughs> And talking of fun, Ian, I mentioned at the top of the recording just about you being a DJ. That'll be something that lots of people won't know about. So just take us back in time. Well, it is back in time. It goes back to 1982. And it's uh, a very good friend of mine, still is a very good friend of mine. Peter had this idea of setting up a, a mobile disco, which went by the rather unfortunate name of Night Rider Mobile Discos. So there were, um, there were six of us. Four DJs, two roadies, um, very interesting bunch of people actually. And one of them was um, one of them was a bit of a an expert on 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 lighting, and another one was an expert of building kit because we didn't have a lot of money, so a lot of the kit was actually built. But um, Eddie, one of the guys, actually worked for Northern Light, so we used to get a lot of the equipment as it came onto the the market so i think we we described ourselves as the biggest light show in the east of scotland i don't know whether that was that was true or not so you know actually we had we had great fun and i uh i did that for a for a for a while before i before i moved south and then occasionally if i came back home i would turn out and help peter and the last time i i appeared uh behind the decks was in 1991 so it was a long time ago it was the night that hibs won the cup won the cup and Peter and I were the were the DJs for the for the evening. So it was it was good fun back in back in those days. And we always tried to make sure we played the things that the audience wanted to wanted to hear. Maybe there's is there a message in that for the independence movement? I don't know. What kind of music do you play? Oh well, in those days it was really it was, it was a question of what people would dance to. And given we're talking about that period in the eighties, if I was started off, um, because usually you would let things set up, and you thought it was the time to. To hit the lights and hit the sound in a in a in a material way, then I would probably have started almost always with with Bowie's "Let's Dance" because that was almost guaranteed to get people up on the on the dance floor. But it wasn't it wasn't a question of what you wanted to play. I suppose around about that time, a band that I did quite like in the early years, were a bit of a cult band, were Simple Minds. But um, I, I, I'm criticised these days by my aunt, my wife, when we're in the car because there's a she would say there's a sameness to a lot of the music that's played and a lot of it would be would be big country or run rig or meatloaf so I guess to some extent am I am I am a feature of the time that I grew up in and the music that I still continue to listen to. Can you remember the first record that you ever bought? I can. Um, it was nineteen seventy two and it was T Rex and it was Metal Guru. Mm-hmm. 